Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Hi, this is Podside the UK. I'm Coco Khan. And I'm Nish Kumar. And this week, we're saving the UK from toxic masculinity. We'll meet a man who went toe-to-toe with the internet's most prominent misogynist, Andrew Tate. Filmmaker Matt Shea tells us about his long fight to expose Tate and the price he's paid for it. Plus, I'm a politician. Get me out of here. It's farewell to Nadine Dolrys. Hi, Coco. Hi, Nish. It's, uh, we're here... As politics in the UK is about to rev back up ahead uh, of MPs returning to the Commons on Monday after the summer recess. I know, I can imagine them all there, fresh-faced after their lovely summer holidays, gadding around in fields, <laughs> or more realistically, staying in their second homes somewhere in Europe. Um, <laughs> but uh, we've got a lot to talk about. Yeah, because there is one towering political figure who will not be returning because Nadine Dorries has finally resigned. Yes, 81 days after she said she'd resign with immediate effect, having been denied the period she was promised by Boris Johnson, the former culture secretary has finally fulfilled her promise to quit Parliament. She wasn't going to go quietly, of course. A scathing 1,700-word resignation letter was published in the Mail on Sunday, putting it up there with some of the longest resignation letters in history. Classy till the end. (laughs) <laughs> and she towed the party line till the absolute end. She just went completely rogue. She accused Rishi Sunak of demeaning his office and running a zombie government. Here she is uh, speaking, of course, who else could it be but to the Daily Mail? There are a group, a small group of very powerful men, both at the heart of the Conservative Party and at the heart of Downing Street, who very much control events. And I don't think many people are actually aware of that. And that's one of the things that I've uncovered in the book. But what it also represents is an absolute democratic corruption at the heart or a corruption of democracy, rather, at the heart of the Conservative Party. Rishi Sunak became Prime Minister without a single member's vote or a vote from the public. No one has voted for him to be in that job. Nobody. Strong, strong words yeah. from Nadine Doris, who seems suddenly bothered about corruption in the Conservative I Party. I like how she said, I, I, this is what I've uncovered in the book. Like, yeah. I'm pretty sure everyone was talking about it I at think, the time. I think you could have uncovered that by Googling the Conservative <laughs> yeah. Party. I, I don't think you need to have gone like fully into researching a book. She's got Boris Johnson's phone number. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do respect the, uh, the plug, though. Do you know what I mean? Just as I mentioned in my book. This is what I have discovered in my book. She's almost like, it's like shamelessness is her superpower. I'm a bit fascinated with Nadine Dorries for a whole range of reasons. But I mean, you know, are we doing this? Are we going to go deep about Nadine? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, why not? Let's do it, right. So I was reading reading her uh, biography. Not the official one, just the one on Wikipedia. You're reading her Wikipedia page, Coco. Don't try and dress this up like it's an intellectual exercise. I was reading a detailed biography (laughs) on the website (laughs) Wikipedia. I don't know if you've come across that scholar, <laughs> w.ipedia. Very good. Um, but, you know, she, she came from humble beginnings. Yeah. She, yeah, you know, yeah. working class woman, social housing, we have that in common. And somehow I think Nadine Dorries had a similar parallel at points life to me, but rather than sort of going, oh, isn't that funny how some people succeed and some people don't and some people get up and some opportunities and some people don't. She was just like, fuck me, I'm great in it. That's basically, she. I think she honestly has this, this sort of exceptionalism thought that she thinks that she is the best. I think she genuinely believes it. It, The resignation letter is further evidence of this kind of, what you're talking about, these almost like delusions of grandeur that she has. Because it was, it's written, I mean, these are like lines from like a musical. (laughs) Like it's so... Uh, overwrought uh, and overwritten. Uh, She said uh, of Sunak, what exactly has been done or have you achieved? Since you took office a year ago, the country is run by a zombie parliament where nothing meaningful has happened. I mean, again, where have you been for 13 years, Nadine? (laughs) 
You have no mandate from the people and the government is adrift. You've squandered the goodwill of the nation. For what? She also said, it is a fact that there is no affection for Keir Starmer out on the doorstep, which is an interesting definition of fact, regardless of how you feel about Keir Starmer. He does not have the winning X-factor qualities of a Thatcher, Blair or a Boris Johnson. And sadly, Prime Minister, neither do you. And it also contains this genuinely strange line. You flashed your gleaming smile in your Prada shoes and Savile Row suit from behind a camera. But you just weren't listening. That is, that's like a Papa Roach lyric, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you really feel it. But just on the subject of musical uh, lyrics and, and politicians, do you remember back in 2018, yeah. there was that rapper, Drill Minister, yeah. who wanted to make a point about the hypocrisy around violent language and rap music and how it's always like pointed at as being the sort of whatever, the demise of society and moral degradation. But yeah. actually our politicians are very vulgar and they, they yeah. sort of trade in this as well. Well, I just wanted to have a look at some of her best lines. Okay. And I'm just going to read you the one that I found. Okay. Right? So in 2013, the then deputy political editor of the Daily Mirror, Ben Glaze, had inquired about the various family members working for Dorries, right? So yes. her sister worked for her, her daughter worked for her. Apparently her daughter back in 2013 was earning between 40 and 45K, which is pretty tasty, not going to lie, right? So this journalist was looking into it and Dorries tweeted her reply and it just said, be seen within a mile of my daughters and I will nail your balls to the floor using your front teeth. Do you get that? I don't know how to do her accent, so I just did Jason Statham instead. Yeah, because because it sounds like something Jason Statham would say. It doesn't sound like something a politician would say. It sounds like a line from the film Crank. <laughs> you don't know who I am, but you will. I'm Nadine Dorries. Um, yeah, but like, like... So just in summary, she announced that she'd stand down on Saturday evening, uh, which is 11 weeks after originally pledging to quit with immediate effect on the 9th of June. Uh, her salary is £86,584. She hasn't spoken in the Commons since June 2022, and she last voted in April of this year. So Doris tweeted on Tuesday that she had a new job because in order for an MP to leave the Commons uh, before a general election, they have to be appointed to a historical position of steward and bailiff of the 300s of Chiltern. That's how you leave as an MP. It is hard to continue to make the case this is a real country. Although you have to be appointed to that and apparently you have to write a letter in the press. That seems like a new <laughs> tradition that's coming up as well. Very bojo. I, do you, like, genuinely, do you think that's a thing that's going to keep happening? What? That people announce their political moves in the press before they tell their colleagues. Coco, in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about the state opening of parliament yes. where a magic man in a gold hat comes and allows us to have democracy. It's going to get even weirder in the next few weeks. Can I just also just take a little bit of a moment as an opportunist? Like, yeah. in the spirit of Nadine, I think she would support this. Yeah. That if anyone wants to come and resign publicly, we have a very large sofa. Oh, we we Our are happy to host many. any political resignations. <laughs> yeah. We will absolutely throw the floor yeah, open. Yeah, yeah, for Resignation sure. corner. <laughs> yeah. If you want to resign as an MP, we are we would be delighted we to provide you a with a service. forum for we that. We can like help you brainstorm. <laughs> You know, we can like sort of pull out top points. We can wrap stuff for you. It'd be fun. Um, but onto the by-election. So Nadine Dorries resigning means inevitably there will be a by-election. So a motion known as a writ has to be moved when Parliament returns on Monday. That would mean that between 21 and 27 working days, we will find a by-election being held. Yeah, and the, yeah, the constituency is mid-Bedfordshire. Um, and look, Dorries has a majority of 24,000. But after huge swings, away from the Tories in the recent by-elections, both Labour and the Liberal Democrats are um, eyeing this one up. Though if they did lose this seat, it would be the biggest by-election defeat ever. I mean, they both, they're both feeling pretty confident, aren't they? The Lib Dems and Labour. They both overturned whopping majorities to take seats off the Tories recently. So the Lib Dems overturned a 19,000 majority in Somerton and Froome and Labour overturned a 20,000 majority in Selby and Ainsty. Look, we've talked about tactical voting a lot on this podcast. We've talked about any possibility of uh, progressive cooperation uh, in certain seats. Uh, and the polling guru, Sir John Curtis, has said that there is still a possibility the Conservative Party could retain the seat if Labour and the Liberal Democrat Party split the anti-Tory vote. So we could all be about to learn a very mm. stark lesson about political cooperation and its uses in the face of a seat that, you know... I imagine a lot of people in mid-Bedfordshire are pretty fed up of the Conservative Party yeah. because of the person that they've di directly dealt with from that party. <laughs> <laughs>
so, you know, Nadine, farewell. It's been real. But before Please we... don't ever fucking come back. <laughs> like, with love in my heart. Please don't ever fucking come back to politics. You had some views. I'm absolutely obsessed not with the, the fact that she wanted to privatise Channel 4, but yet appeared in Channel 4 documentaries quite regularly. Yeah, and then unfortunately in front of a select committee revealed that she didn't understand the ownership structure of Channel 4. <laughs> I mean, she has so many highlights. Go so ahead. many highlights. In fact, actually, we've actually, thank you to our producers, for the listeners, we've, we've done a little compilation of some of Nadine's best bits, so it, please enjoy. Yeah, enjoy this, because one of our producers has had to sit through a lot of shit. <laughs> Have you spoken to the Prime Minister recently in the last 24 hours? Why? Why are you asking me that question? I'd like to know. Um, aren't, we've, we've communicated. The UK is passing some new legislation to make the internet safer for the younger generation. It's effectively a framework to protect internet users from scams, illegal content and anonymous abusers. But, but Channel 4 is not like the BBC. Uh, it, it, it's not in receipt of licence fee money. It, no. it, it makes its money from commercial operations. And so, although it's, yeah, and that it will force big tech to stop their terms being breached and puts in measures to defend free speech. But is it true it will impact freedom of expression? No, we put in legal protections in the 19th section. Well, that's what the Prime Minister said. Well, I don't, you haven't he your shouldn't word have said it, should he? Well, I think there are lots of things that Keir Starmer shouldn't have said. Well, there are clearly things that he said that aren't the true. The Prime Minister. Now, whether, he would, the whether they were deliberate lies or not has yet to be established. But he's clearly said things to the House that were not true. The Prime Minister tells the truth. Nadine Dorries uh, may be gone, but we'll never forget her TikTok rap about the online safety bill because it's burned into our <laughs> retinas. <laughs> There's been a noticeable uptick in political activity in Westminster as uh, MPs return to work, um, hopefully, uh, if they've been able to make it back from their holidays because of the air traffic control meltdown that's happened in the UK this week. Uh, some of the key headlines, London has become the world's largest pollution charging area after Sadiq Khan's expanded ULE scheme went live. We've had Suella Braverman's brainwave uh, to ask police to catch criminals as part of another themed week by the government. Uh, and the government elsewhere has scrapped house building rules which were designed to protect our rivers. The one we're going to focus on, though, uh, is Labour's Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves explicitly ruling out Labour imposing a wealth tax if it wins uh, the next election. Uh, she confirmed that Labour would not target expensive houses, increase capital gains tax or put up the top rate of income tax and that any extra money for public services will have to come from economic growth. It was revealed uh, in, our, uh, in an, uh, an exclusive given to The Telegraph, which sort of, given the political leanings of that paper, maybe suggests the audience that Labour is trying to reach with this. It's a very traditionally conservative newspaper. Um and it, it's widely being reported on as uh, the party trying to demonstrate its economic competence. And again, we return to this sort of one of the key themes about what constitutes economic competence or what constitutes tough choices that have to be made. Because more of the status quo mm. does not seem to me to be evidence of economic competence. Are you really looking at Britain? in the last 13 years, as we reach a point where our public services don't work, our infrastructure doesn't work, we've suffered over a decade of chronic underinvestment. And are you really saying that that's economic competence? Mm, I don't get it on an economic sense. I mean, you know, New Labour, they had a wealth tax. Maybe they didn't call it that, but that's something that they did. That's how you raise money that we need for public spending. But also, I think most of the public genuinely want to see spending into the NHS. They want to see the potholes fixed. They want to see things get better. So I don't I don't understand why they're taking this, taking this line. Yeah, I, there's various different organisations that have... Uh, researched what a wealth tax would look like. Um, analysis by Tax Justice UK, the Economic Change Unit and the New Economics Foundation uh, that was uh, conducted earlier on in the year found that a modest wealth tax on the wealthiest 350 families in the United Kingdom could raise more than £20 billion wow. a year, uh, which the example given would be it would fund the construction of 145,000 new affordable homes. Now, when we say a modest tax, what we're specifically talking about in that this instance is a 2% tax on assets above £10 million. 
and that's held by all of the members of the Sunday Times Rich List. That's where you get the uh, mm. figure of twenty-two billion pounds a year from. And if you think about how much money that could raise, it seems kind of extraordinary. And Rachel Reese has pointed out that people in Britain are living through the highest tax burden for sixty or seventy years, but. It depends on which section of Britain you're talking yeah, about yeah, that's absolutely. being burdened with that taxation. The richest 250 families in the United Kingdom are sitting on a combined wealth of £748 billion. And at the minute, the burden of this cost of living crisis and all the things that are going on is is being put on some of the most vulnerable. Less than a quarter of the 100 wealthiest people on the Sunday Times rich list also appear in the Times' annual list celebrating the people that pay the most tax in the United Kingdom. And that's because we have a taxation system where assets are taxed at a lower rate than income. Capital gains tax, property tax, these are ways of generating revenue that would not harm the people that you're extracting that wealth from and would be an incredibly useful tool in rebalancing the the British economy. A one-off 1% wealth tax on households with more than a million pounds would generate £260 billion. That was an idea that was actually put forward by the Independent Wealth Tax Commission in 2021. And the reason that that was put forward is because the number of billionaires actually increased from the start of the pandemic. We went from 147 in 2020 to 171. It, it's there, there are ways of extracting money that don't damage the people that you're taking it from. And I think that, you know, writers that I respect have been writing articles about how Labour needs to campaign and essentially suggesting that Labour needs to campaign effectively on a sort of wink policy, <laughs> that they announce something and then at the end go, wank. You know, like that's basically, that seems to be the inference that Starmer and Rachel Reeves particularly are, are leading this kind of frontline campaign that they're essentially going to say, we're not going to raise taxes. And then as soon as they get into power, they're going to raise taxes. And that we just need to sort of blindly trust just that hope that's there's what's going to happen. We're basically, this 13 years of underinvestment, we we kind of need solutions it, now. It's it hard. Well, look, you know, I, you know. And, and also, can you really, can you, re- if they don't do it, <laughs> we don't really have a leg to Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> that's the problem. If the whole time, you know, if we're sat here, uh, you know, a couple of years, in 2027, two years into a, uh, a Starmer government, and there isn't some sort of reform to the taxation system, we can't very well turn around and go, well, we in good faith assumed you were lying to us. Exactly. You never said it, but we believed it anyway. Well, I think uh, one of our listeners, Gaz, kind of shares our feelings on this. Um, He messaged us via WhatsApp to say, hi guys, I just heard that Labour has ruled out a wealth tax. Now, on the one hand, this could be a good thing as Labour has a habit of U-turning on every promise. So perhaps this means a wealth tax is coming. Woo! But in all sad likelihood, they will probably stand by this one. So we're again facing more rich people making policies that aid the rich and fuck the poor. A billionaire tax is widely popular, I assume with, I don't know, 99% of the population. Bare minimum tax people the right amount. No more tax havens, loopholes, tricky accountants or behind closed door rim job deals. Oh, wow, Gaz, this is getting Gaz very is saucy. economist and poet. <laughs> yeah. I hate that I'm voting Labour just to get the Tories out, but I don't feel represented at all by them. Keep up the great show, Gaz. So if you want to send us a WhatsApp like Gaz, our number is 07514644572. Internationally, that's plus four four seven five one four six four four five seven two. The New York Times calls BritBox the best of British telly. Stream acclaimed original series, including Payback, starring Peter Mullen, Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, and Archie, the man who became Cary Grant, starring Jason Isaacs. Plus, discover powerful new series like Three Little Birds and the return of BAFTA-winning drama Time, starring Bella Ramsey, Tamara Lawrence, and Jodie Whittaker. Stream the best of British TV only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com.
Nish, here's a fact for you. If you were aged between 16 and 17, you'd be more likely to have watched an Andrew Tate video than heard of Rishi Sunak. Yeah, I mean, there's any number of reasons why I give thanks for having grown up in an era of dial-up internet. You know, at the time it seemed frustrating, but I don't think we quite realised what monsters would be unleashed by high-speed internet available on mobile phones. Well, I mean, he really is the world's most notorious misogynist and he is currently charged in Romania with rape, human trafficking and forming an organised crime group to sexually exploit women. He's also been accused of rape by several British women um, and they're hoping that police in the UK will reopen their investigation. I think that's important to say that it's not just someone with bad opinions. This is an active... Uh, will certainly accuse of very, very heinous crimes. So while most of us couldn't bear to spend four minutes with Andrew Tate, our special guest, Matt Shea, has spent four years investigating him. Matt has made the documentary Andrew Tate, The Man Who Groomed the World, which can be viewed on BBC iPlayer from Thursday night. So this is the second documentary Matt has made about Tate. Let's hear a clip from his latest film. For two years, I've been investigating his secretive society, The War Room. The War Room is a whirlpool. Once you're in, you're in, and it's hard to get out. Speaking to women who say they were targeted by this shadowy organization. As soon as I walked in the door, he, like, pushed me to my knees and, like, smacked me really hard across the face. And whistleblowers who are now ready to reveal what's really going on. Let's not kid ourselves. This is a cult. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us, Matt. I've seen both the films now. And it's, I mean, it's a pretty sobering watch. And you have had pretty direct contact with Andrew Tate. Have you heard from him since you finished editing the film? Yeah, he messages me uh, quite frequently. He just recently messaged me to say um, that I'm his only chance for relevance, uh, which just gives you an idea of the kind of level of arrogance that he has. Yeah. Although he is to a degree kind of right because that's why I'm here today. <laughs> but um, but yeah, both him and his brother messaged me. It's something that comes up over, over the course of the two films that he's sort of, you've kind of become a character in his sort of online universe. You're the focus of a lot of anger from him, his brother, and also his kind of legion of on, online fans. So why did you... I'm I'm just trying to phrase this in a way without going, what are you thinking? But why? what made you want to go back and make a, another film about him? Well, because the first film just didn't scratch the surface of what we've uncovered. Right. And this new film, what it really gets into isn't just Andrew Tate, but the people behind Andrew Tate. And in particular, his secret all-male society, The War Room, which we uncover evidence that suggests The War Room, at least in part, exists to teach men to groom women uh, into online sex work through forms of coercion, isolation, and manipulation. Now, it's important to remember not all men who are in the war room will engage in that activity and listen to those teachings, but that is a part of it, uh, at least the evidence that we've seen suggests that. And not just uh, the war room, but also he has these generals that are at the top of the war room with names like the Sartorial Shooter Mm. and um, the Right Hand of Wudan and and names like that. And one of those generals is a man who goes by the name Iggy Semmelweis. Mm. Uh, He's a self-proclaimed wizard. He claims to have powers of hypnosis. And the film that we've just released, it basically, it goes into a lot of detail on him and and basically covers that he was instrumental in the creation of Andrew Tate and his war room. And uh, one of the really interesting parts about that is he's a student of comparative mythology and is very into this idea of a hero and an anti-hero. And so to some degree, putting me as this kind of arch nemesis is part of their marketing campaign. Just explain to us what the war room is, because there's sort of, there's there's like three, or maybe maybe there's more, there seems to be sort of three key layers to his, his business. And the kind of closest inner circle is the war room. Every layer, we should say, involves handing over eye-wateringly large sums of money to Andrew Tate. But what what is the actual, what is the war room? Yeah, that's exactly right. So the first level of Andrew Tate followers are his followers on social media. He has millions. Uh, At one point, he was the most searched person, one of the most searched people on TikTok. And at one point, he was the most Googled man in the world. Um, And then a lot of those filter up to the real world, which is his kind of online course, which teaches you how to become wealthy and successful. So is that Hustlers University? It was previously called Hustlers University. That's right. 
And, uh, and then some of those people will filter up into his most exclusive society, the war room. Once inside, you get access to a telegram group and the option to spend even more money. Uh, by the way, it costs $8,000 a year to join the war room. Yeah. But then you get the option to spend even more money um, with exclusive courses and events around the world. I think it's imp- really important that we get into Tate, the misogynist, and that that's such a key part of who he is. But there's also this huge kind of sort of strange kind of hardline extreme capitalism running through a lot of these things. And, and Hustlers University, a lot of the courses are telling people about sort of cryptocurrency and investments, right? What's, what is the actual purpose of Hustlers University? It, it's a really good question because you could argue the actual purpose of Hustlers University is to make Andrew Tate and his friends money. Yeah. Uh, but ostensibly the purpose is to help you escape what he calls the matrix and become rich. Becoming rich is how you escape the matrix. And somehow he's rebranded this kind of hyper-capitalist desire to become rich through crypto, et cetera, and own a bunch of cars as rebellious and kind of punk rock in a way. Yeah. And that he is this kind of rebellious hero, hero that's going to help you you know, break through and escape by earning lots of money. And when we say the matrix, we basically just mean like uh, society as we know it. Yeah, I, I think the best description of the matrix is a kind of global conspiracy of of the media and the government that aims to keep young men from knowing the truth about life. You're both part of the matrix. Oh, I'm yeah, part of the matrix. Right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, fun. I, so I can't much. do any uh, like high kicks or <laughs> I can't like melt my face like they can in the matrix I, though. I just it's very like, sad. I know this is not the more serious points, but so much cultural damage has been done by people willfully misunderstanding the matrix. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's, it, it's amazing. It's like a whole generation of people watch Terminator and came out pro Skynet. Like it does like it's like I don't think you understood any of the core messages of this of this film, which its creators have confirmed is an allegory for being a transgender person. <laughs> like it's yeah. it's absolutely bananas. I and that and Fight Club as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. It's yeah, people who watched Fight Club and were like, yeah. Rap it was cool. Yeah. So I think one of the things that, you know, whenever I talk to people about Andrew Tate, there's this idea that like, this is just a fringe nut job. You know, like what you described there about wizards and mythology, you know, you could argue yeah. that this is a cult. Why is this such of, of grave concern to Westminster, to policing, to teachers, to us on this podcast? Why are we talking about it? And I suppose my theory is that, well, Andrew Tate is just a symptom. And if you got rid of him, there'd be another one. And this is a cultural thing that is happening that has real world impacts. Is that what you found in your investigations? I think there's something uniquely um, worrying about Andrew Tate in that, like you said, it, it, it's the kind of thing that we, you know, on this podcast, politicians, teachers, parents, we're all like, this guy is clearly a fringe figure or maybe everyone knows who he is, but they all think he's ridiculous. Yeah. But that would be a mistake because our sons and our nephews don't think that. And, and you pointed out that 52% of 16 to 17 year olds are more likely to have heard of Andrew Tate than have heard of Rishi Sunak. Also more likely to have a positive view of him than, than, than not. Uh, and that number goes higher the younger you go to a degree, uh, similar in, in, in loads of countries around the world. So if we aren't aware of what our children are are looking at, then we'll we'll just be sleepwalking into a world where we've, we're raising a generation of Andrew Tates. And and you know you you'd be forgiven for thinking that where society's become more progressive on this issue with the Me Too movement and et cetera, but actually it, it could be going the other way. Mm, and we are seeing examples of that already. You know, we've seen teachers talking about how classrooms are simply just unmanageable now, particularly if you're a female teacher, because the the, the male pupils are, are quite literally saying, why are you teaching me? You should be making me a sandwich. Uh, the Department of Education have had to take action about this. There are courses that are being run to help teachers manage this kind of toxicity in their classroom. And every single course sells out. If we take down uh, Andrew Tate, Iggy's going to step in, right? Like this is a... A, a serpent with many heads. Mm. Yeah, or or uh, Iggy Samwise may find a new kind of figurehead. Right. Um, there are a number of people that come to mind. Sneeko is is gaining popularity rapidly. He's a similar kind of misogynist influencer. Right. Um, yeah. There. There will. You're right. Until the problem is addressed in social media and and how these kind of relentless algorithms feed content so quickly to young people, then there will always be a new 
potential Andrew Tate on the horizon. And the problem with Tate now is that even though he has been deplatformed by most of the social media websites, although I, I understand he is He's back, back on, on Twitter. Yes, he, yeah, on, he was reinstated by Elon Musk. Yes, in the finite wisdom <laughs> yeah. of the flat-faced meat man, he's reinstated Andrew Tate. But even without being platformed on uh, other things, one of the things that you've shown in the films is there's a whole army of Tate fans that essentially are essentially just sharing his videos, putting them up. And they're very often not Tate fans. I mean, this guy sat in front of huge computers in his compound in Bucharest. And there yeah. is clearly, uh, you, you clearly get the sense that these are people who are creating huge amounts of shadow accounts and just pumping it out. So it be becomes irrelevant whether he's on there or not, right? I mean, absolutely, yeah. So this is the the kind of in ingenuity of Tate is that he's managed to financially incentivize teenagers all across the world to share content of him. Because at one point there was an affiliate marketing scheme whereby you would get a percentage of someone's subscription fee to the Hustlers University if you wow. shared content of Andrew Tate. The more controversial, the better, with a link to the Hustlers University underneath. Um, so yeah, he financially incentivized young people to, to make him famous and rich. And that is brilliant. But there is this whole marketing infrastructure behind him. I spoke to a uh, someone who claimed to be the head of sales and marketing for Andrew Tate. Yeah. And, you know, the way he described the dozens of people working on this was was shocking. I mean, you have dozens of people clipping out and resharing and some fake accounts, some real, discrediting um, the people who critique him on social media or harassing them. And the real world effect of that is that a lot of people still think that Andrew Tate is a great guy and nothing's going wrong. When people come up to me in the street, you can tell, you know, they'll often say, to, if, a, if a Tate fan comes up to me in the street, which happens all the time, they'll say, oh, you know, clearly the whole narrative has, has turned against you now and you've been totally discredited. That's what they yeah. think, right? So it, I'm like, oh, you actually think that I've completely been discredited and our, and our reporting has been completely discredited because that's what people on Twitter are saying. You've put yourself in the firing line of, you know, a man who kind of revels in a certain amount of violence, who uh, brags about owning guns, who says that men should walk around holding swords to make themselves feel powerful. You kind of put yourself in the firing line of that man and his kind of armada of followers. Do you feel unsafe? Are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, um, look, like I've, as part of my reporting, I, I've interviewed the Albanian mafia, yeah. Andrew Colombian cartels. I've actually had guns pointed in my face by actually scary people. Andrew Tate, you know, who pretends to be a character from the Matrix, his right-hand man pretends to be a wizard and wears tight-fitting shirts, isn't actually scary. <laughs> and, you know, his neither are his fans. And yes, they send some pretty explicit death threats. Which, you know, I'm going to wait outside your office and slit your throat. Yeah. Or, I'm, you know, I'm going to... I've hired someone to behead your entire family in front of you. It's like, no, you haven't. What are you talking yeah. about? I, don't know. I mean, not, not to say you should be very afraid, Matt, yeah. but like there is a quite well-trodden line between incel, misogynistic online culture and people who go out and shoot people and yeah. shoot women and, and do things like that. They do commit violence. Not trying to scare you, but no, I'm just no, saying totally. like we, we do need to... They, they are scary. Yeah, they, they, they are. I think, it, but as a journalist, it kind of comes with a job, first of mm -hmm. all. And it's nothing right. like being a journalist in, say, Mexico, where you're actually putting your, yourself at risk. You know, people are just mean to me on the internet, maybe. Yeah. Um, and I also think that if you are consistently investigating someone for things like human trafficking, grooming, uh, rape, and their only response is dork nerd geek, then yeah. you've, you know, they've sort of lost the argument. I yeah. mean, that, that just to be clear, that's what their kind of term for me that's is. What, is yeah, they call and me they, the DNG. And they demand that you bring them a box of chocolate. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. There, there is an extraordinary bit in the documentary where you actually say to him, look, you're being charged with rape and human trafficking. Do you think it's an appropriate response to just shout, give me some chocolate? But in terms of when you are, when you are confronted by these tape fans, what, what's their line of conversation? Do they just come up to you and say, Dork nerd geek, I recognize you. You've been discredited. Yeah, kind of. And also you stitched up Andrew Tate. Like I was right. walking back to my tent at Glastonbury and three of the security guards kind of surrounded me and said, you know, oh, you stitched up Andrew Tate. You wow. stitched him up. And, but if often when you engage with people, you say, look, so what, do you just believe everything Andrew Tate tells you? And they all, they're sort of like, no, you know, no. Okay, well, you know, Andrew Tate tells you you should be skeptical of everything. Why aren't you skeptical of him? Because he's manipulating you. Yeah. And I think oftentimes it is literally because they just haven't, they have Twitter for a brain and they haven't actually 
looked at other news sources. Yeah, the bit of the documentary that I thought was the most extraordinary, where you actually talk to a kind of Andrew Tate fan. He seems to have come to Bucharest essentially on, I mean, I don't want to use the word, well, why not? It's a fucking, he feels like a pilgrimage. Like he's come to Andrew Tate's house, just stand outside of it and take selfies. And you actually talk to this man. And I think we can hear a clip of that now. Let's say someone had video evidence of him, him committing these crimes. Would that also be part of the Matrix attack? Depends. Depends if it was staged. Depends if it was real. No one would know. No one would know. No one would know. What threshold of evidence would you accept that he that, has committed these that crimes? Andrew said that he was guilty himself. Anything besides that, I, I would question it. It feels like a cult member. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's. I think that's the thing that I've been thinking a lot about in terms of Andrew Tate is like, you know, why now? So yes, okay, why now? Because everyone's got uh, mobile phones and they can download video co- content. Okay, so that's the technological side of it. Why now? Because there's opportunity. Okay. But also I wonder if why now? Because there is genuinely an immense distrust of the media, of politicians. So when somebody says, oh, they're all in a cabal together. I mean, we were talking about Nadine Dorries earlier and in one of our clips, she's talking about like the powerful people, this kind of conspiratorial language that is everywhere, even from the people in charge. Is this a sign of the times? People too often look at conspiratorial movements and kind of these hard right movements as a political ideology when often they're closer to a spiritual ideology. The way that people talk about Andrew Tate, who are super fans of Andrew Tate, they are moved to tears by him and moved to tears by any accusation that he could do wrong. Uh, To them, he has been the one thing that's that that's driven them out of their depths of insecurity and and solved all their problems and um you know yeah it, it really is more of a spiritual thing it's great to hear you say that as well because again i've been thinking a lot about like and i mean you know you two are two gentlemen i mean there is a crisis of masculinity i think that perhaps there are ideas of how a man should be but then the question is you know as a political podcast what could politics be doing to stop this culture, this ideology embedding itself in an entire new generation. Because my concern is, is how would you undo that? Do you know what I mean? If you've got a load of 15 year old boys who genuinely believe that the feminazis are trying to take everything away from them, that the natural order is that women make sandwiches and men fight and they should be strong. How on earth do you undo that? Yeah, we should definitely like stress that this survey in February found that one in five school children, with some of them as young as 11, experiencing or witnessing sexual harassment whilst at school or sexually abused abusive behaviour, which is becoming normalised in British classrooms. And the Department for Education is carrying out a review as we speak in how sex education should be taught in England in an effort to kind of counter, I think, the sort of toxic masculinity. I mean, is there advice or guidance you could give to lawmakers for practical steps they could take in schools for combating Tate and his ideologies? Yeah, I think that there should be discussion of what it is to be a man. I think it's okay to discuss what it is to be a good man and what are the positive aspects of masculinity. I just think that those positive aspects should be centered around things other than you want to own fast cars and have a harem of women. Yeah. Um, I, it should be, there should be something else. You know, there, of course, there are great men that we should look up to, but they just aren't Andrew Tate, you know? I wonder as well if there's like a positive case to be made about like, yeah, having happiness in life, as you say, that isn't just driving a Lambo and acting like Vin Diesel. And Vin Diesel would never have a haram of women. <laughs> Everybody knows he no, only loves what? Michelle Rodriguez. Yeah, it's all about family. Like, it's all about family. Well, yeah, I think, I think there's lots of contradictions in this idea of masculinity that's being touted by people like Andrew Tate. The most obvious one, I think, is this idea that, you know, to be a good man, you should be a protector of people, right? But if what these women are saying is true, then who protects women from people like Andrew Tate? Um, Or this idea that men should be stoic and hide their emotions. And yet also these men are constantly whining about how the whole world and society is stacked against them. Um, You know, or or the the contradiction that, you know, uh, we hear from a lot of men's rights groups that the family courts are um, biased against men because women often get custody of children, but that's exactly because of the gender stereotypes that the same men's rights groups are espousing. So it doesn't actually make any sense. It's full of contradictions. I'm just, I'm always curious as to what, you know, lawmakers can, like what, 
possible stuff they could do. I mean, mm. in terms of policing social media, I mean, is it too late for someone like Tape? I, I'm sitting here having this conversation with you and all three of us know that when the videos of this conversation are put on Instagram, they will be immediately filled with comments from angry Andrew yeah. Tate fans. So does, does social media bans work? I mean, are we too far gone in terms of being able to regulate it now? All I'll say is there are examples of successful regulation of information on social media and there are unsuccessful examples of that. It is possible. Uh, You know, in the same way the New York Times can't come out and just publish a lie without serious consequences, the same thing shouldn't happen on Twitter. You know, I've had... There there are comments about my reporting that have been viewed and retweeted millions of times um, that claim, for example, that my documentary was debunked uh, to the point that it actually caused the financial collapse of Vice. Like a lot of people just believe that. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> it's nuts. Isn't that libelous? You know, yeah. I, I don't know. It, it, so I think there there has to be some, because ultimately these social media um, websites, they are media websites and therefore they are kind of competitors with other media organizations like New York Times, like The Guardian, who are bound by yeah. very strict fact-checking uh rules. I think that is such a brilliant and important point around social media that they have claimed that they are simply websites. Yes. They're essentially just hosting conversations, but they have functioned in revenue terms as publishers, but they've had they don't have any, they're not subject to any of the same regulations. One of the things I'm really keen to get across in this time that we have with you is to for our listeners who may not be familiar with Andrew Tate, that like, you know, it's not just like shitty sexist opinions. Mm. It's it's much deeper than that. And so you've been very close to his teachings. Feels weird mm. saying that. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to ask you about the the training that he offers men. This is, yeah, this is really interesting. And this is exactly what our, our new film goes into. And basically what we uncover is, and this is mainly through interviews with two women who alleged that they were groomed by members of the war room mm. and also uh, from internal messages um, that were leaked to us from w- within the war room um, by a whistleblower. And what we uncovered was that there appears to be a kind of systematic method for grooming women specifically into online sex work um, that involves what they see as a kind of Pavlovian conditioning, which is how you train dogs. And again, not all war members will abide by these teachings, but some will. And um, and also sometimes they also brag about when it's successful. You know, they, they will send pictures back to the war room called receipts um, of the woman that they're targeting with their initials tattooed on her body as proof, you know, that they've implemented these methods successfully. Also, I've, I've seen messages where they talk about punishments they've meted out on women. Uh, one man spoke about hitting... Um, one of these women over the head with a keyboard for refusing to work hard on her online uh, webcam business. So, you know, there are at least some examples of of violence, physical violence. And uh, also I've seen them encourage men to kind of isolate these women from their families. So when you look at that picture together, then yes, what we're talking about is an ideology that to some degree could be described as as enslavement. Uh, And that again, that is a term also that is used by um, Iggy Semmelweis, female sexual slavery. And so they, they call it the lover boy method where they, yeah. so they, they, they sort of pretend that they're romantically interested in these women and then they start coercing them into webcam sex work. Yes. And then basically taking their, taking their, sometimes, sometimes 100%. Sometimes 100% of the money, yeah. sometimes 80%, sometimes yeah. 50%. But yeah, um, the lover boy method is uh, mentioned by a lot of police forces, especially in Europe, who are trying to combat human trafficking. It is, as you said, when someone portrays himself as romantically interested in a woman, uh, and then um, their but their intention all along is to manipulate them into sex work. Now, um, you you have to imagine like you're dating a guy and you think he's in love with you. And then gradually over the course of, who knows, you know, months, years, he begins to do weirder things like kind of, um, reward your good, quote, good behavior with attention and sex and kind of punish your, quote, bad behavior with ignoring you and stuff. And then 
you don't know this whole time he's sending pictures of you talking about you to this group of men who are actually instructing him how to coerce you into eventually doing webcam sex work. I mean, that's horrifying. It's like a kind of manual on coercive control. Yeah, yeah and even just behaving in that way, like punishing certain behavior, whatever, yeah. like that is the basis of domestic violence. Yeah. Um, mm. And so even if they're not turning these women into a revenue stream, uh, that normalizing that kind of treatment of another person in a relationship that is normalizing domestic violence and a number of domestic violence charities have raised the alarm on this I just want to leave you with one question are you closing your chapter on Andrew Tate actually I said that this documentary this new documentary we released it because the first one didn't scratch the surface actually the second one also doesn't scratch the surface wow <laughs> yeah yeah so I think uh, there will be more to come the biggest thing that I take away from this the second documentary particularly, you're watching video of a guy basically boasting about committing the crimes he's accused of. That's how it that's how it looked to me, right? It's important to remember that Andrew Tate, Anderson Tate, deny all these charges right. against him and, and would say that they are innocent. I think it's likely that some of the things they said in in their courses and yeah. uh, in their social media content will show up in the investigation as, alongside intercepted audio conversations and other forms of evidence, allegations from women and so forth. Well, all I'm focused on is I would never go beyond the facts. Is just, you know, my job is to find evidence and, and report on it. And I think if, if I have one concern, it's that no matter what we report on and, and how much reporting we do and no matter what charges um, may or may not um, be filed against him, because of this army of followers and supporters, uh, because of this marketing team trying to discredit every opinion that's mentioned against him, who knows if people will listen? Who knows if people will yeah. believe anything we say? And, it, you know, to some degree, what's the point of, of journalism for that group who are the the target of Andrew Tate if they don't believe you? Hearing you, you talk there, like that, I think you sort of hit the nail on something that like is a growing concern. I think for a lot of us, like, you know, we, we look to law, we look to media, we look to education as how we shape society. But, you know, social media, the global world of the lawless internet, how do you, how do you manage that? But I think fundamentally, as you pointed out, a lot of these Andrew Tate followers, you can talk to them. You chatted mm. to those uh, yeah. bouncers in Glastonbury and maybe the more we know about it, we can talk to our nephews, our sons or whatever. And yeah. perhaps that's the only way. Yeah. Um, so Andrew Tate, The Man Who Groomed the World is on BBC Three at 9pm on the 31st of August. It's then available on BBC iPlayer. This is your second documentary and I would urge everyone to watch the first as well. Thank you, Matt. Thanks very Thank much. You. NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. If approved, applications are typically funded the next business day or sooner. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Applications subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. It's time to reveal the Pod Save the UK hero and villain of the week. So, who are you going for? Uh, I'm going for former Conservative Prime Minister Theresa May, uh, who this week uh, has been uh, hawking around her new book. Brace yourself for this if you're not aware of it. The book is called The Abuse of Power Confronting Injustice in Public Life. Now, Theresa May's record uh, <laughs> as a Prime Minister is not without issue. Uh, I think her record as Home Secretary 
is pretty famously with some pretty heavy issues. The Windrush scandal uh, is widely thought to be the culmination of a policy that she implemented as Home Secretary under the headline Hostile Environment, repeatedly restating that the uh, goal was to make the UK a hostile environment uh, for illegal immigrants, but a policy that was pursued uh, through such ventures as charting a fleet of vans with uh, messages telling, suggesting immigrants that they go home uh, and numbers that immigrants could call to facilitate their journeys home, uh, like a racist remake of the film Cars. Theresa May's ongoing rehabilitation in public life is, I can only assume, the result of, I mean, first of all, the result of several sections of the press's unquestioned support for her that then blow up in their faces and their attempts to kind of rehabilitate rehabilitate her reputation and therefore rehabilitate their own political analysis that she was going to be the fucking greatest prime minister of all time. But also it's a refusal to engage with how deeply unpleasant the Windrush scandal is because Mm. of endemic systemic racism in sections of the British media. And I think it's also because people who came after her might have been worse. But, you know... Just because you got punched in the face and then you got kicked in the nuts, you don't go, well, I really miss the halcyon era of being punched in the face. <laughs> Theresa May was a terrible prime minister. She's an awful person. When she left office, she cried and I was delighted. And that remains my position. I hope her book sells zero copies and I wish nothing but misery on her. Coco. <laughs> yes. Coco, who's your PSUK hero of the week? My uh, hero of the week is a bit more in the in the realm of healing. Now, yeah. as you know, I'm a great believer in a music festival. I went to one over the weekend and genuinely, every time I come back from a music festival, I'm like, why can't Britain be like this all the time? <laughs> why can't we all sit around on the grass in the sunshine? Someone does handstands, someone else does poi. Everyone says, all right, mate, to each other. Yeah. And we all know that we're going to share in probably some relatively disgraceful behaviour later, <laughs> but we accept it. We accept each other for the freaks and creators and the lovers that we are. Why can't I always be like yeah. that? So basically, my long, this is a long way of saying make Britain Glastonbury again. Basically, <laughs> this is what I want, make Britain Glastonbury. But um, at this festival that I was at recently, I noticed a group of women in pink T-shirts and on the T-shirts it said safer spaces now and they were just about enjoying this festival. It was a smaller festival so you really got the sense you got to know people a little bit better. And I approached one of them and asked them about it. And basically the UN has a campaign called Safer Spaces Now. And it is for women. Uh, it's basically to raise awareness of the fact that seven out of 10 women get harassed on nights out and women should be able to enjoy nightlife like everybody else. Obviously, our last episode was all about that. And so these these lovely volunteers who just volunteer their time go and wear these pink T-shirts and just stand around at music festivals so that if you're feeling uncomfortable as a woman, you can approach them and say, hey, mate, can you stand with me for a bit? Or, hey, mate, can you walk me back to my tent? Basically, you can ask them to be your, like, Bezzy May for that period of time. They also walk around looking for anyone who's maybe a bit drunk or could be taken advantage of. They're just these completely voluntary guardian wow. angels that exist and they do it in their own time. And I love stuff like that. I love the whole just an average person helping another person. The kindness of strangers, as Blanche Dubois would call it. Oh, she's doing a literary <laughs> reference. Hello. Tennessee Williams for my American audience. <laughs> um, you know, and I just think it's absolutely beautiful and healing and kind and wonderful. And uh, yeah, so everyone who has this summer volunteered to be a uh, Safer Spaces Now angel, yeah, big you up. You're, you're our hero of the week. What a lovely way uh, to round off the episode and to round off uh, festival summer. That's yeah, a really absolutely. nice positive message. Although actually, uh, just on this there there was an email that I wanted to read out um, it speaks to the risks faced by women at music events with reference to the discussion that we had uh, last week about the decline of UK's nightlife it was written in from our listener Erin they say I was saddened to hear about the closures of nightlife venues I used to go to lots of clubs and music events however the reason I stopped going for the most part is because of the sexual harassment and even assault that I experienced while out at night I know I'm not alone in this where people particularly women are too scared to go out at night. Not only that, I used to work in clubs and bars and I would be harassed on most shifts by customers. I went to management about it and they said, you have to toughen up. I was appalled that I was essentially told that I had to accept it. I think that this issue needs to be addressed either by the organisers or government or police or all of the above. And I absolutely could not agree more. You know, it really tells you something when the United Nations are launching campaigns on this. This is endemic and it's so wrong. Like, you know, for people to be locked out of just joy and celebration is 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 really really sad. Yeah, and it speaks to 
uh, you know, part of a continuum that involves male violence and people like Andrew Tate. Like it's all part of a wide societal problem that I think we can only solve by talking to our boys. It's a well-worn trope, but it doesn't seem to be getting through to anybody that we only talk to women about sexual violence Mm. and we only talk to the victims and try and teach them ways of avoiding it rather than talking to men, the perpetrators, and trying to change the culture and the conversation around it. Um, I think that that's a really sad and horrible thing to hear. And also makes organisations like the people you saw at the festival feel even more significant. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So our last episode was about nightlife, as you mentioned, and it sparked a debate in our YouTube comments uh, at Alex time mit 9454 says people not staying out till 7am as much or spending less on alcohol isn't inherently bad have we considered gen z might not like clubbing as much in my experience clubbing involves a lot of peer pressure towards overconsumption i personally don't think clubs having a hard time is top of the priority list right now for social issues replying to that at edward linden disagrees saying at the very least it's a serious economic problem jogs existed now they don't money circulated now it doesn't a culture thrived now it doesn't personally i loathe clubbing but even i can see that this is a substantive problem and you know i would also say i sit very much on edward linden's side of that i'm not a prolific night clubber <laughs> listen i've been to a club with you mate and i can assure you you are not a prolific <laughs> night <clubber>. oh. <laughs> but spaces for people to you know commune and dance with one another that's an important part of being a young person you know I definitely had this moment when I was um, at the festival and like you know, I went to go see a DJ who's a friend of mine she was playing in the sort of like sunset slot so like 6pm yeah. or whatever and there was a moment where oh, her name's uh, DJ Kate Hutchinson by the way shout out to her she's yeah, very good shout out the <laughs> yeah. uh, and there was a moment where you know she was playing her like sort of big moment where it goes into like a Whitney Houston remix yeah. and obviously the crowd was going wild and I looked around and there was one woman wearing a shirt that was completely see-through and she was completely naked underneath. There was another woman wearing a uh, sort of bondage holster and then another man top to toe dressed as a wizard. (laughs) And I did have a moment being like, I could see why people might look at this moment and be like, this is not behaviour we should encourage. <laughs> These people are depraved. They are freaks, weirdos, creatives, artists or whatever. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, for some people, it's a way of expression and increasingly yeah. how we express ourselves is in decline. Yeah. This is quite sad. But like, you should be free to not want to go nightclubbing, but also you shouldn't not be going nightclubbing because they've all shut down. <laughs> you know, there, there is, there, there, you know, there's a, there, there's a balance to these kind of things. So you can get in touch with us by email emailing psuk at reducelistening.co.uk. We're loving your messages, but we would also love to hear your voices. So do send us a voice note on WhatsApp. Our number is 07514 644 572 internationally. That's plus 44 Really just love to hear your thoughts on what we've discussed this episode. You can also nominate your own heroes and villains. Or if you'd like to ask us a question that we will try to answer, please note we may ruin your life with our bad <laughs> advice. But, you know, we are here as your favourite political agony aunt and uncle. Next week, our guest is the Labour MP Chris Bryant. He'll be talking about his book, Code of Conduct, Why We Need to Fix Parliament. If you have a question you'd like to put to him, please let us know. You can send it in to us at psuk at reducelistening.co.uk. Um, by the way, it's your last chance to make us really really happy by voting for us in the British Podcast Awards public vote the listener's choice is free and easy to do just go to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash voting anyone can vote so once again just go to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash voting um, and thanks to everybody who watched my stand-up show, which I got a lot of uh, correspondence about it, which was very nice. It will be available for people who don't live in the UK or have Sky uh, at some point. I, I wish I had more details <laughs> yeah, than that. That was but, such a vague announcement. Listen, if you go on my Instagram and watch a video I made whilst under the influence of some pretty heavy painkillers after a hand <laughs> surgery, you'll see that self-promotion is not my forte. <laughs> cool. Well, we'll keep out for that thing that might come out maybe sometime <laughs> soon. We don't know. <laughs> Uh, Pod Save the UK is a reduced listing production for Crooked Media. Thanks to senior producer Musty Aziz and digital producer Alex Bishop. Additional production assistance was from Annie Keatsthorpe. Video editing was by David Kaplovitz and the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thanks to our engineer David Dargahi. The executive producers are Louise Cotton, Dan Jackson and Madeline Herringer. Watch us on Pod Save the World's YouTube channel or follow us on Twitter, TikTok or Instagram, all of which we're at 
at Pod Save the UK. And uh, don't forget to hit subscribe for new shows on Thursdays on Spotify, Amazon, Apple, or just wherever you get your podcasts. For the next 15 seconds, picture yourself in a small town. Historic buildings with galleries, restaurants, micro distilleries, forested ridgelines on the horizon, wide alpine meadows. Evergreen forests threaded with trails. Friendly locals eager to guide you. And if you're not quite ready to leave this fantasy, chances are you're our kind. And you should check out visitparkcity.com right away. Park City, Utah, for the mountain kind. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.